open with prayer first. Lord God in heaven, thank you for the season, the season of Advent. I'm reminded of the word Adventus, which means an official arrival or an official coming. So Lord, we're grateful that your son came to us 2,000 years ago. But Lord, as we look at the kings, we also see Adventus. We see in this case the arrival, the official arrival of your servant David, who you yourself say is a man after your own heart. So help us, Lord, as we look at his reign to actually be reminded of your ultimate reign and how he points to his own descendant, which is an amazing mystery um, in the person and work of Christ. So help us to have open hearts and open minds as we encounter your word and encounter this account. And Lord, uh, as we get into the season of busyness, that we pray that you keep us healthy and keep us safe as we celebrate the arrival of your son. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right. So what I have displayed for you, and so you have your normal outline. So this grid shows you in parallel form, if you're watching online, I'll hold it up to the camera here. This shows you in parallel form how First Chronicles and Second Samuel dovetail together. So some of it's word for word, some of it's very different. So you can have that in front of you. It's just kind of a guide. So if you want to keep this as you come to class or as you are studying on your own, or if you miss a day, you can see what passages. We're pretty much going to follow this in order. I might skip occasionally just for the interest of time, but I'm going to go through most of this uh, in conjunction and I'll display for you up here um, the different passages when they dovetail together. I'll try to have them right next to each other in parallel form like I am right now. Okay. And second of all, um, I wanted to explain why I'm doing it this way instead of like the big black screen with the white letters. I wanted you to see, I have two translations of 2 Samuel up in front of you right now. Um, I'm using the ESV on the left, and then on the right is the New King James. The reason I say this is in 2 Samuel in particular, there are some interesting variants in the text. Um, because you have two main translation patterns that we see uh, in the history of the church. So we have what's called the Masoretic text. That's the Old Testament that the Jews have used, really kind of out of the rabbinical um, synagogue cycle. Ralph, your Israel Bible would be out of this, for example. That's called the Masoretic text. And the earliest Masoretic text that we have is from about 1000 A.D., so a thousand years after Jesus, okay, that's the Masoretic text. And so when you translate the Bible and you translate the Old Testament, you use that Masoretic text. However, in the 20th century, we also discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most important archaeological find in the 20th century, and some would say all time. And so we found, for example, almost a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And, that, and those books date to about 150 to 200 B.C., so over a thousand years before the Masoretic text. All right. Now, in addition, to make this even more kind of interesting, we have the Greek translation of the new of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, right? The Septuagint, the LXX. If you ever see a study Bible that says LXX in Roman numerals, that's a reference to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So when you have these three streams, there's also Syriac and some other languages. You can see some different translation choices and some different varieties in the text, which makes sense, right? And so depending on what manuscripts you choose to translate from, you get little variants and varieties. So in the ESV, which is on your left, it follows the Masoretic text, okay, the kind of rabbinical Judaistic text. The one on the right, which is the New King James, has more influence from the Septuagint. And you'll see some choices made by the translators where the meaning is almost identical. And some of the wording is identical. 
but there is some little differences and you'll see them giving you a different scent. So I'm displaying both of them for you so you can see how this is read. And really what it is, is it's more of a tone or a tense issue. So in other words, who's speaking or is it present or past tense or both? It's, it's hard to kind of get that. So I want you to see both tense because Second Samuel is the most difficult book in the Old Testament to translate for this reason. Because it's like, which one do you choose from? So my, and this is the first Samuel one. I have my second Samuel one at home. First Samuel, similar. And so if you look, like in these commentaries, this is first Samuel 19. All of this is textual information. So he's like telling you why he's translating the way he did. And so it's a, it's a thing, right? It's a thing in scholarship. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't trust your text. It doesn't mean that it's bad or faulty. It's still the word of God. It just shows you that every translation is an interpretation. And so that's why pastors are trained in Hebrew, for example. It's why our theologians at our seminaries are not only trained in Hebrew, but also Aramaic and Greek and Latin and those languages, because that way we can get to the original meaning of the text when we do things like study Bibles and translations and those sort of things. We are unafraid of those things um, as far as that goes. We are unafraid of scholarship. We're very open and very honest about our scholarship. Not all religions and not even some uh, varieties of Christian groups are as honest and open about this process. But you can find all this all this data. We're very open about this. Nothing's hidden, unlike the Gnostics, where you have, you know, secret gospels or something. We're very, we're very open about this. So let's look at this. This is uh, uh, what we did last week is we did the death of Saul, and that's found in 1 Samuel 30 and 31, the death of Saul. It's repeated in 1 Chronicles 10, and so that was what we covered last week. So now we're going to get David's reaction. And it's one of the great songs, actually. It's a lament in the Old Testament. And it shows you David's character. So let's look at this together here. And I'm going to read from the, the New King James on the right-hand side. But the ESV, if you have an ESV, it's projected for you on the left as well. But I want you to hear, and the reason I'm doing this is the New King James is more poetic. And so when you hear David's lament, you'll get the drama of it a little more in the New King James. Go ahead. Right, it's not Chronicles. New it's King. 1 Samuel, I mean, so not 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 1. Okay. It's just New King James on the right, ESV on the left. Does that make sense? So you can get a better sense of the, the drama of what's going on. All right, so I'm going to read from the New King James, and you have the ESV if you want that more kind of literal Masoretic translation on the left. Now it came to pass, and I'll kind of highlight here for our people online here, okay? Here we go. Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So he's appearing to be in mourning, right? So a man's showing up to David, and he's already in a state of grief, already in a state of mourning. So it was when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. So he's acknowledging David's kingdom already. He's, he's saying, you're my king. I'm going to go and I'm going to bow. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Jonathan and his, I mean, Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man told him, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Goboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he had looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. 
He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains on me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Okay, so if you are with us, and if you want to look back at this as I'm speaking here a little bit, this is not what happens at the end of 1 Samuel. This is a completely different account. So critics will look at this and say, oh, we have competing accounts. You can't trust the text. Whoever edited the book of Samuel has two different versions of Saul's death. So we know Saul died, but we really didn't know how he died. See, we know the Bible isn't the word of God now because there's contradictions. That's what will happen. You'll have critics that will say that based on this account. There's a couple of things that you should remember. Number one, remember 1 and 2 Samuel were one scroll. They were never divided until later, and it's just because it's bulky. It's a lot of information. So why would the author in the same book contradict himself? That's really odd, right? We have some hints that something else is going on. Number one, he's an Amalekite. The Amalekites are a historic enemy of Israel, right? We have somebody who's showing up to David bearing the king's gifts, right? In this case, the crown and a bracelet from Saul. Royal. He's wearing royal regalia. Actually, he's not wearing it. He's bearing it to David. And he's somebody who's somehow connected to Saul. Maybe. We have hints, and if you read commentators on this, and you see David's reaction, we think the Amalekite is making this up to try to get on the ends with David. This is a lie. He's lying. He's lying to David to try to get David's approval. Because in the ancient Near East, and really up until the 18th century, 19th century, most times when the king died, there's a dispute. There's a civil war. There's a, there's people that are being killed. There's a succession. So people are out to protect themselves, right? So this Amalekite's like, all right, we got a new king. And people take advantage of it also. But because there's a new king, hey, if I'm quick enough or if I move the right way or say the right things, maybe I'll have some new power and authority in this new kingdom, right? And so the Amalekite is trying to, uh, I guess, ingratiate himself with David. So this is not a contradiction. So if you read 1 Samuel and you read 2 Samuel and you're like, wait a minute, I just read that Saul fell on his own sword. But here I'm saying the amount, who's right? Well, the text is correct. Saul fell on his own sword. This guy is lying. There's a whole lot of details that are wrong. There's, by the way, one of the big ways that you know that this is a lie. Look what it says. As I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, here's the issue. How hard is it for chariots to go up a mountain? There's a hint here that this is not true because Saul's not going to be afraid of chariots circling around a mountain. However, in 1 Samuel 13, 31, does anybody remember how he was actually wounded? Anybody remember? Looking back? I'm being a high school teacher. Forgive me. What is it? Yeah, he's doing it. My son's doing it. Arrows. Archers. He's wounded by archers. That actually does make sense. And so here he is coming in saying, oh, these chariots were surrounding him. And he asked me, he's like, wait a minute. You're, if he's on the mountain, you could probably see David thinking about it. David knows this landscape, right? You could probably see David thinking, but wait a minute. You're on, he's on the mountain, and he's worried about some chariots? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay? And so there's already something fishy with this story a little bit when it comes to this. So this guy's lying. This is what you need to know. This is not a true statement. The Bible, remember, reports true things. Even if somebody's lying or doing the wrong thing, it just reports things factually. So in this case, it's reporting the Amalekites lie accurately. So it's important that we know that because that's a big textual issue. And you'll have atheists that'll like make these books that say like, you know, a thousand and one Bible contradictions. And this one is almost always included. 
It's not a contradiction. It's reporting a lie. All right, verse 11. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now, that's an important statement, and you often miss this because of the context in the Old Testament, where he says, I'm the son of an alien. What that means is he's a resident proselyte. In other words, he fears the, the Yahweh. He fears the Israel God. He's like, he's a legal immigrant. Does that make sense? And he participates in the life of Israel. So he's a foreign-born kind of partial citizen, not full member of the worshiping community, but he has legal rights and he's represented there, which means Saul is his king. Now we've got a problem and David's going to point something out. So David's calling him out. He's kind of hoisting him on his own petard here. Look what he says. I'm the son of the alien and Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. It's pretty interesting. And so this is, it seems harsh, but God uses David here. And David makes a point. Never, David had two time, two opportunities, maybe maybe even more. In uh, 1 Samuel, through the chapters of 21 to 30, he had two opportunities at minimum to kill Saul. And he never did it because he would not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. And so now you have this guy coming in trying to, you know, ingratiate himself to David and said, hey, look, look what I did. Aren't you going to reward me? I even brought the crown for you. Oh, mighty king, I'm your servant. It was like, see, see what he did wrong here? Is this making sense? This is why David reacts the way that he does. If you look at your, I have this kind of outline for those of you who kind of came in and it talks, talks about this verse. It's verse 15 it says, go execute him. David believed the Amalekite story and on that basis had him put to death. David's action provides clear evidence that he had no complicity in Saul's death. That's David. Though the Amalekite intended to win David's favor, David made it clear that his action constituted the murder of the Lord's anointed, for which the just punishment would be execution. Okay, so it's pretty interesting. And then we get this famous lament. And this is a really famous line. I don't know if you've heard this before, how the mighty have fallen. This is a really, really famous uh, uh, Hebrew text. It's called the Song of the Bow. Okay, and you can see it also projected here. It's a little not quite even here on the left. The song of the bow. Then David lament, lamented, sorry, with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. If you ever see this book of Jasher, we do not have this. We don't know much about it. We think it's some sort of royal chronicle, um, just like the, the 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 archives. You know, the United States has the, the national archives, right? The book of Jasher, and there's also another one that we hear in 1 Kings and in 1 Chronicles called um, the Books of the Kings of Judah or the Annals of the Kings of Judah. These are royal archives. Okay, so the book of Jasher is not some secret thing that if we dig up the, the, the archaeology, we'll have a new book for the Bible. Okay, it's just a royal record. Okay, it's a royal record. Here's how it says, or here's how it goes. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Uh, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. 
O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the soul of Saul did not turn away empty. Sorry, sword of Saul did not turn away empty. And so there's some things going on here. What David's saying here is he thinks that this place where Saul and Jonathan died should be desolate. He's kind of basically cursing this land because it's the Lord's anointed died on this mountain. So he's basically saying he's he's asking for God to make this place this desolate, desert-like place because it's not a place of blessing anymore. And so if an entire mountain stands out and it has no vegetation on it and everything around it is green, that should tell you something's weird about that mountain. That's what David's asking for, okay? Also where it says the shield of Saul not anointed with oil, um, that's not a, uh, a messianic thing where they're like anointing God's people. This is the idea that you have to take the leather in your shield and keep it fresh. Right. So in other words, you're anoint, you're 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 putting oil on your shield so that it's pliable and it's flexible and it actually can you can like connect it to the metal and the frame that's in your shield. And so you would always routinely do this. What he's saying here is that Saul's mighty weapons are decaying. They're they're broken down. They're no longer being used. It's and so that's that's the poetic way of describing that. And then of course from the fat of the mighty, the fat of course is the good part of a sacrifice. And so he's saying that everything is is uh, is bad here. The the ground shouldn't grow. His all of his uh, royal equipment is breaking down, and none of the sacrifices are taking place like they should with the king of Israel. So everything's everything's a mess. Saul and David were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with luxury. Scarlet was very expensive, came from a certain insect. It was a certain dye, very, very pricey, very rare. Who put on ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant for me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So this is the Song of the Bow, one of David's earliest songs that we have. And he's not even fully king yet. We're going to see that here in the next chapter. But it's pretty amazing to see this reaction. So he's singing this after Saul has tried to kill him and pursued him numerous times. That shows you that he's, again, David is of, of a different character. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth, or actually probably about three weeks ago. But this is worth mentioning again. Um, there are, of course, modern modern political interpreters that try to read this and say, oh, see, he says that Jonathan's love surpassed the civil women. That proves they were having a secret, like some sort of homosexual tryst or something. That is not true. Okay. This actually, by the way, this love of a woman, how do you know that it's not a mom or an aunt or a sister? Number one, you don't. Okay. Number two, this is in the middle of poetry. So this is something else to think about. What he's saying here is that this, this, this fealty, this loyalty, this bond was like, no, he calls him his brother was so strong, right? It was like that or surpassing of that of a mother and his son or something like that, right? This is nothing, this has nothing to do with some sort of secret love affair, but there are scholars or political, I would call them political scholars, that try to read some sort of subtext into this, into this. We addressed this a few weeks ago, but you need to know it exists. And you should also know that for most scholars, whether they're Jewish or Christian, if they actually know what they're doing, they dismiss this out of hand. Okay, this is not, this is not, nobody takes this seriously. It didn't even exist, that interpretation, until the 20th century, which should probably tell you something. Okay, yes, go ahead. Right, it has multiple meanings. 
Well, that's Greek. That's Greek. This is Hebrew, right? But but besides all that, that's absolutely true. So one of the things, and I have to say this to my stu my students all the time. One of these days, I'll just show it to you too, just because it's a good, just kind of cultural moment. Um, the Colson Center. Uh, that's uh, they have that. What would you say channel? Um, they have a whole video that just came out like two months ago, and they they go after. And I think I mentioned this. Go after that love is love phrase. Well, love is love. Say so, well, that's. Number one is a tautology. It's it's actually a meaningless statement. It's like me saying this chair is a chair. I mean, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. What's but the subtext behind that is what they really mean to say is that all loves plural are the same or have the same ethical and virtue. That's what they're actually trying to say with that phrase. And that's not necessarily true. And so what what's what what I would say here, just very briefly, and I want to move on, is all loves are not equal. You can love, and this is coming from natural law a little bit, but you can love the right thing the wrong way. And you can love the wrong thing the right way. So you can have selfless love for somebody, but it actually become an idol, for example, and take the place of God. I also can love my son very differently than the way I love my wife, right? I love my 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 students very differently than I love my father and my mother. Those are all forms of love, but they're not all the same and they're not all equal, right? And so to somehow argue that all love love is love is actually false. And nobody actually truly believes that, which is interesting, right? If you actually press somebody on that and say, do you love your dad the same way you love your spouse? Like, well, no. Wait, I thought love was love. <laughs> do, do, you, do you see what I mean? And so it's a it's a mistake. So when we read this in first in Second Samuel, sorry, Second Samuel one, it's it's a false equivalency, and it's a it's, it's reading modern sensibilities and modern. Uh, presuppositions into the text. And that's really, it's hard. We're, we're in a, it's a hard situation as, a, as Orthodox Christians who believe in the authority of the word and who have uh, traditional views on things like marriage and gender and stuff like that. We read this and we're like, well, obviously it's not something like that. But when you say something like, what? What's wrong with you? Are you homophobic? See what happens? See, say that they'll like go after you and say there's something wrong with you if you don't read the text that way. And so that's how these discussions go. And so and in a way, I don't care because people that are outside the faith are going to make whatever they want of the faith anyways. That's not new, but it is something that's interesting that comes up in these conversations. And I'm not even talking about the morality of that necessarily. I'm just saying that there's modern political agendas being read into the text when it has nothing to do with that. It's a dude who just lost his best friend in battle. He's allowed to cry a little bit. Right. He's allowed, he's allowed to be upset. And again, the important thing here has nothing to do with any of those topics. The important thing is it's showing David's character as one who is mourning God's, the loss of God's anointed. That's the whole point of this text. The macro view of this has nothing to do with these modern political agendas. It is the macro view of the text. So it's important that you understand that and just realize that this happens. And it's sad because you would love to just talk about it and how beautiful the poetry is and how it's us. But we have to like talk about these agendas. And it's in the commentary. It's in our Concordia commentary. It's just, you, it's, you have to address it now because of our culture. All right, so I'm going to go to the next chapter here. Before I move on, does anybody have any questions about that? Comments? Okay, good. Second Samuel 2, and this is the other chapter that I wanted to get to here today. And here I'll just kind of do it again with parallel translation. Let's look at this. Now David's going to be anointed king of Judah. There's going to be a little bit of a, of a, of a pretender to the throne. Saul's last surviving son. He's not going to last very long, but there is going to be a pretender. So here we go. It happened after this, so after that song of lament and after that period of mourning, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go? And he said, That is the Lord, to Hebron. How does he inquire of the Lord? This is almost certainly via the high priest, Ahimelech's son. So remember, Saul killed, 
right? Ahimelech in uh, 1 Samuel, it's 24, 25. He kills the high priest, right? The priest of Nob. And so, but this is the priest's breastplate had the Urim and the Thummim. Remember this? Those mysterious objects. We're still not exactly sure how that was worked, how that worked. But when it's whenever you see that phrase, inquire of the Lord, when it's a when it's a in a king, it's almost certainly through the high priest in some fam, in some fashion. Okay. So he inquires of the Lord, just to make sure we're clear. So David went to Hebron up from there, and his two wives also, um, Ahinoam. The Jezreel, that's a fun one to say, Jezreelitis, say that one five times fast, Jezreelitis and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man in his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, You are blessed to the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I will also repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And so in the at the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, remember the Philistines are desecrating Saul's body and Jonathan's body. They decapitate it and they're displaying it. The men of Jabesh Gilead basically go at night and rescue the body to give it an honorary burial. So David's, uh, again, showing that he honors Saul and for who he is as God's anointed king. And so he's honoring the people who did this. And this is, again, very kingly of David. Right. One of the things you do as king is to praise those and lift up those who do good and to punish evil and to restrain evil. And so he's showing his kingliness by already, even though Saul was, quote unquote, Saul had made himself David's enemy. He's still honoring those. He's a king of honor. This is an honor culture. And David's doing this really quite well. So here's your pretender to the throne. But Abner, the son of Nair, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth. That's another one for you. Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. So these are the northern kingdoms, okay? Or the northern tribes, sorry. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. We have this pool in archaeology, by the way. It's like 40 feet deep. We've actually excavated this. So this is an archaeological site you can go visit. Just so you know, this is not some made-up thing. We have this pool. Um, we can go. You can go see this. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place is called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were the were three, and it's actually there. Here we go. Joab and Abishai and Ashael. And Ashael was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Ashael pursued Abner, and in going, did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. 
Zariah is David's sister. Okay, so if you didn't know this, this is a, it's a textual note, and I think I put this in here for you. Um, uh, where is this at? Where we meet Joab. I think it's a note for you here. Yeah, on the on the second side of this like textual thing, if you want to see that, just to kind of give you some context here, it says this marks the first appearance of Joab, the son of Zariah, through Abishai, who was referred to as his brother in 1 Samuel 26. Joab was commander over the army and appears frequently in 2 Samuel as a mover of events, right? So in other words, it, it, it continues. He was one of three sons, Joab, Abishai, and Ashil, of David's sister Zariah, and thus was David's nephew. Joab's father probably died young since he had a grave in Bethlehem, and it was unusual for a man to be known by his mother's name. Zariah is not identified in Samuel, but according to 1 Chronicles 2, she and Abigail, the mother of Amasa, were sisters of David and his brothers. Abigail is identified as the daughter of Nasha, the sister of Zariah. Therefore, it appears that Abigail and um, probably Zariah were maternal half-sisters of David by an earlier marriage of their mother. So when David, so this is, remember how I said that when David marries Abigail, it's not considered like a bad marriage, like it's an additional marriage. He's a kinsman redeemer. He's a, he's a close family member. And so when Abigail's husband dies and David takes her on, it's a Leverite marriage. So this is not him just like, Oh, she's hot. I want her for my wife. This is not that at all. It's it's actually he's doing his duty under the Leverite customs when he acts because she's actually a family member. And so you kind of have to put all these puzzle pieces together <laughs> to kind of see David's family here. And that's why I have that textual note for you. OK, so David's sister, Abigail, is a different Abigail from Nabal's wife, who later became David's wife. So you have all these Abigails and you have all these and you have all these people running around. So one is a kinsman and the other is his and then the other is like a half sister. And so there's, it gets, it gets confusing. And there's people that debate these two, like who is who, are they the same, are they different? But you should know the main thing is, is this is a family affair. And so David and his family members, his nephews, cousins, that sort of thing, are fighting against uh, the uh, the kinsmen or the family members or the tribesmen of Saul. So this is a succession dispute, and that's what's taking place. So this is David's kinsmen. That's what makes this so confusing. Okay, here we go. Let's continue on the text here. So back to 18, just to kind of, so the three sons of Zariah, that's David's sister, were there, Joab, Abishai, and Ashel. And Ashel was as fleet as foot as a wild gazelle. He's quick because he's a sprinter. And back then, if you're a runner, that was a big thing, right? We see that with the ancient Greeks and Romans too. So Ashel pursued Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. He's not giving up. He's dogging, right? Somebody who knows what he's doing. Then Abner looked behind him and said, are you Ashel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. This is Abner kind of trash talking a little bit and say, hey, you sure you want to do this? Sure you want to do this? Go get some armor if you really want to fight me. Be careful here, okay? But Ashael would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Ashael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? And how could I face your brother Joab? So he's like, okay, your older brother is legit. And I don't want a blood feud with him. So please back off. That's what he's telling him. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of a spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that many as came to the place where Ashel fell down and died stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. 
Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all through the night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all to Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants 19 men in Ashel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. Then they took up Ashel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Okay, that's a lot of names and a lot of place names, which is why you have this map in front of you a little bit. But it also shows you this kind of, it's kind of gruesome and kind of violent, right? We see this in the Old Testament, but I want to show you what's happening here. So it's, it has a big question mark over where it says Ammon. Ammon is out in the Arabian desert. You see Mahanaim, you see that kind of list up there. You can see where this action is taking place. And then Hebron is to the left of the Dead Sea or to the west of the Dead Sea. So David's ruling in Hebron. Right. That's where he's ruling in the southern cities. And so there's a pursuit going northeast there to Mahanaim as Joab and his brothers are pursuing Abner. And at Mahanaim, the Benjamites, who are from the north, kind of rally amongst their kinsmen. And there's a showdown. And then they kind of go their separate ways. But the, the battle is not done yet. We're not done yet. What it is, is it's kind of like an uneasy truce. And basically, Joab and Abner are yelling at each other, and they have a couple of showdowns. And so if you go back earlier in the text, just to kind of recount this, if it helps make sense, you have Abner, the king of Saul's army, right? This is just narrative. This has nothing to do with theology right now, okay? It's just kind of confusing. You have Abner, the king of Saul's army, who wants to kind of keep himself in some position of authority because he's a little freaked out that David's coming into his own right now. And so he tries to create his own king, a pretender to the throne, who's basically going to be his puppet. Ishbosheth, Saul's youngest son, is not ready to rule. So by having Ishbosheth, Abner is really the one who's in charge. Does that make sense? And so, and then he he and his kinsmen in the north, especially the Benjamites, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. They're rallying on one side. So we have a succession dispute. This is, again, very common in the ancient Near East and really all throughout the world when a king dies. Then David has those, his, his group, and he has his own general, Joab, who's a kinsman, it's his nephew, who is rallying his side. So you have two generals. They're more like captains. They're like your daring swashbucklers. They're the people that back in the day would have been knights in the Middle Ages. And so Joab's like David's chief knight, if you want to use that. Abner was Saul's chief knight. And this is an honor culture. And so they meet together around this pool, ready to have a showdown. So they're trash talking each other. And Joab and Abner basically say, let's let our young guys fight this out first and see what happens. Right? They have a fight. Both sides kind of kill each other, but David's side wins for the most part, and that's what starts this pursuit. And now we have a showdown, and now we have a blood feud that started because Joab stabs backwards, right, with the blunt end of a spear, and he, it's with such force. And because Ashael is running so quickly, it actually goes all the way through him, right? And that starts this blood feud, and that's going to actually help unfold the action of the next several chapters. And so there's a few things that I'll say about these, these chapters, because the next the, when we get back, we're going to do like three through five. We're going to do a big chunk. 
it's reporting factual events. It is not necessarily endorsing them, right? It's not like when you read this, you're like, oh man, we need to be better in battle and be as strong like, uh, you know, like Abner so that we can just, you know, crush somebody if they're pursuing us or something. That's not the point of the text. The point is to show that how God is going to use human brokenness and God's going to use the violence of the world to still accomplish his ends. This is not ideal, right? This is not ideal. It shows violence in the land, but it also shows how God's going to eventually rule through David and he's going to establish order through David. God is God of order, not of chaos. And we're seeing some chaos here with this breakup of the kingdom. Okay, so that's one thing I wanted to say. Another thing, Joab, even though Joab is David's kind of like right-hand man and one of his mighty men, kind of the general of his army, um, Joab is not necessarily shown as the highest in moral character. And so God can even use flawed individuals, <laughs> right, to accomplish his ends, which is a good thing because he uses us too. And so we can view it from uh, through that lens as well. And so it's a fascinating passage, but really this is just narrative. It's historical narrative. So we interpret it, historical narrative very differently than we interpret, say, the Ten Commandments, right? And so, again, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is it go and do likewise or just this is what happened? We would say this is a descriptive text. This is what happened right around 1000 BC. And this is how David eventually takes control. It's not means that's not true for everybody everywhere. It's just a factual reporting of events, if that helps you. All right. Any comments or questions before we break for a couple of weeks here? Because we're about to 1045 and I'm trying to be at a good time here. Yeah, what's which question? Almost certainly no, because it reports his death. So it's named after him because he's the main uh, uh, author of, I mean, he's the main prophetic figure of the events themselves. But Samuel's death is reported in 1 Samuel, and we have a whole second half, right? That's called 2 Samuel. So it's called Samuel because he's the most important prophetic figure. He anoints Saul. He anoints David, right? He's like the 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 priest that and the last judge, right? He's kind of the last judge also. Um, so they name it after him, but it's almost certainly a figure that's probably about 50 to 100 years later that's writing after it. Still somebody who either had access to the official records or even had some access maybe to some eyewitness testimony on some of these events, um, but is almost certainly writing about 50 to 100 years later. If that, if that helps, which is also why First Chronicles can write from an even bigger macro perspective, which is 500 years later. And that's why we get some bigger details and genealogies and all these other things, because they return from exile. And First Chronicles has that even bigger macro view, if that if that makes sense. So that's a good clarification. So Samuel, right now, Samuel's already dead. And so this is whoever's the the, uh, the priestly author of First and Second Samuel um, is reporting these events probably about 50 to 100 years after they happen, if that helps. <laughs> Go ahead, Ron. Ron was like, yeah. So we heard about the Book of Jasher already, right? And so there's there was official royal records. So the Book of Jasher is already mentioned as that official royal record, or at least one of the official records in the books of the kings and in Chronicles. You'll see this over and over again. It'll say, "Do you want to know more about their deeds?" Are they not recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah? Or are they not recorded in the annals? And so keeping royal records at this time, are the royal records themselves are mentioned. And so they would have access to this. And again, we also think because it's recent enough, again, 50 to 100 years, especially these later events towards the end of David's life, it's probably based on actual oral testimony also. Because it's because um, especially in the first uh, part of 1 Samuel, he says, and it exists, quote unquote, to this day. 
right? And this place exists to this day. And this is why the people, even in this passage, look at this. This is how you can tell there's some eyewitness testimony. The place of the spears. Where is this at? It's earlier. Uh, there it is. Therefore, that place is called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. And there were a fierce battle that day. And so that, again, so they have these places and it's explaining where these places are and they know where they are. And so there's an immediacy to this, which makes it seem like there's eyewitness testimony in addition to the records that are based on that. Ra Ralph, what were you going to say? It seems almost like a, a Hebrew version of the Hadith. <laughs> yeah, or, or what I was going to say is that to me, it reminds me sometimes if, if you read some of the, the stories that come out of like, uh, you know, the Greek city-states. Or like, or even the Roman emperors, when like the generals will like try to compete with each other to decide who's going to be the new emperor. It's similar in that sense. It reminds me kind of like some of that Greco-Roman history, you know, a little bit too. So, all right, let's say the blessing on ourselves as people have to leave. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.